All right. Grab your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 15 through 17 of the opening chapter. This is definitely one of the most intimidating passages to preach on. It is quite possibly the most profound description and declaration of the person of Jesus Christ in the whole Bible. Therefore, it's very intimidating. But my hope, aided by the Holy Spirit at work in me and in us together as we come to your word, that our hearts would be drawn to him in worship and trust and hope. Even if we are intimidated. So let's hear from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God, as we come to your word, we pray that you would be with us, that you would assist us, that you would help us, that you would turn our hearts to it, that we would not be lost in the fog of our own distractions, our own thoughts, our own stuff going on in life, that we would actually attend here now to your word. So would you help us in that? These are profound words about Jesus. And so would you help us to, to drink deeply of this well? Be with us as we come to it. And the preaching, the hearing, the receiving, the believing, the taking in of your truth to your glory and to the good of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The human heart is made for worship. And until it finds what is truly ultimate, it will always be restless. The human heart is made for worship. God hardwired the heart for worship, and we can go about scanning the horizon of creation, looking for something to worship, something to say this is of ultimate worth, something that would define our lives and shape them. Power, possessions, pleasures, people. We keep chasing for the ultimate, for the supreme. And when we find everything and everyone lacking the ability to be ultimate, we get right back on to the chase. It's exhausting. It's a restlessness that can't be self-medicated. But there is some hope for us, for you and me, who have hearts that wander and worship. There is hope for our worship-wired Hearts. God in His grace has made a way for us to have something ultimate, something supreme, be the center of our hardwired for worship hearts. God in His grace has made a way for us to have Him, the only one in all of the cosmos worthy for our worship. So my hope this morning as we consider God's gracious ways of making it so that we would have Him 
as our worship. Is that we would treasure Christ as supreme. That we would treasure Jesus as ultimate, as supreme. We'll find that all things exist for Christ and his glory. If all things exist for Christ and his glory, your life is to exist for Christ and his glory. And that's what I mean by treasuring Christ as supreme. Now, it's not going to be a a profound outline, but it is definitely profound in meaning. To go about treasuring Christ as supreme, we are to worship Jesus, obey Jesus, and trust Jesus. Simple words, simple words, big meanings underneath them. To treasure Christ as supreme... We worship Jesus, obey Jesus, and trust Jesus. Let's start off looking at worshiping Jesus. Here we have in our passage a description that is rich and incredible and overwhelming. A picture of Christ that makes it clear that he is worthy of the supreme position over everything. We see here that he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. That we find in Jesus one worthy of the supreme position. Supreme is a word I use on purpose. So to say something is supreme is to say that this something or this someone is superior to all others. So if you were to say that this thing is supreme, it is better than everything else that's like it. It's over it all. It is top notch. There's nothing higher, nothing of greater value, nothing more significant. It is highest in rank, highest in degree. It is to be ultimate. And that's just the thing. Ultimately, someone has to be ultimate. I love basketball. Always loved it. Played it, watched it, still do. More watching than playing, but still. Love the game. Love the sport. It's beauty. It's art on a court. I love it. Last week, I had the pleasure of taking my oldest two to go see a Celtics preseason game. Y'all are nuts. It's a preseason game, and that place was packed. (laughs) The Patriots were even playing, and it was packed. I'm like, what town, area, region did I move into? Thought it would be easy in, easy out. No, no. I was there with 20,000 of our favorite friends. Love the sport. I'll tell you something that I saw once that I never think I'll ever see again. There I was in Ohio with my father-in-law and some friends watching a high school playoff game. A high school playoff game. And we were there, and that arena was packed. It was packed because there was a 17-year-old named LeBron James. I'd never seen anyone like that, ever. I've been to pro games. I've been to all my college's games, and all the visiting teams come in. And I've saw players that go off into the pros, but I never saw anyone like a 17-year-old LeBron James. We were awed. 
We were perplexed. We were excited. We were hopeful for more. And that was just the first half. Seeing him play gave me an anticipation for more basketball greatness. When you see something ultimate, you want more. You want to see more of it. And so when you see Jesus as ultimate in the pages of Scripture, it's to feed your heart for a longing for more. To get a taste, a visual, a sense of something that is truly supreme over everything. You want more. And what you find in one who is supreme, one who is ultimate, is that they deliver more. We find here in our passage that Jesus is worthy of that position. Consider the otherworldly uniqueness Christ is described with. Look in your Bibles at verses 14 through 20. There are, in just those short verses, 15 snapshots of the uniqueness of Christ's worthiness to be supreme. There are 15 snapshots here of how amazing and ultimate and superior to all Jesus is. I'm going to rattle through them. I'm going to use his name in the place of all the he's. But I just want you to hear him. You can look with your eyes, but just hear this, okay? Hear this. Jesus, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. By Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Through Jesus, all things were created. For Jesus, all things were created. Jesus is before all things. Jesus holds all things together. Jesus is the head, the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. Jesus is preeminent. In Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus reconciles all things to himself. And Jesus makes peace by the blood of the cross. Who else can be described in such ways? Who else could be ultimate? You just had the most profound description of the most profound being in all of creation. And he's yours. He's offered to you through the gospel. He is worthy of the supreme status. He is superior to all. And it's that first one that jumps out in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the imaging forth the invisible God. All that God is. His character, His worth, His goodness, His grace, His glory. All of it is imaged forth to us. All of that that seems so far and distant and never able to relate to us came forth, put on human skin and bones and walked this earth. Walked in a broken world under the weight of the law and he lived it for us. He is the imaging forth. He is the bringing near of what we would never have been able to get to on our own. And in saying that he is the image of Of the invisible God. You can only image something forth. That which you have the capacity to do. Or to have. 
That means what Paul is saying, and it might feel like, well, yeah, of course, we're at church, but we still need to feel this confrontation. Jesus is God. He's not your buddy, your bro. He's not a wandering hippie in the desert. He's God. Way beyond our pay grade of comprehension. Jesus is the only one who can say, I'm kind of a big deal. Think about what Hebrews 1 verse 3 says. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. If you want to know God, you must know him through Jesus. And guess what? God has made himself known to you through Jesus. So you can know God. I hope you feel that. Not just in sort of an intellectual sense. I hope you feel that in your heart. I hope you feel that in your life right now. That, that there isn't anyone in this room so it's insignificant and forgotten and easily overlooked. Because the incarnation tells us that God came near here for his people. Every one of them. You may be easily overlooked by humanity, but you're not easily overlooked by divinity. The imaging forth of the invisible God through the person of Jesus Christ displays to us the exact imprint of his nature, his character. And he truly is worthy to be supreme. How do we respond to that? Well, we treasure Christ through worship. We treasure Christ through worship. The word worship is based off an old English word, worth-ship. We drop the H there in the middle. because You get a little tongue-tied if you say worth-ship really fast. So we just say worship. But worth-ship, that is actually basking in the glory of one worthy of all the attention. That's what you do. Treasuring Christ through worship. And so what that means is we have to hold tightly to things that are true in order to worship it rightly. So that means we need a theology that ultimately aims for doxology. What do I mean by those words? Theology is the study of God. If we want to know God, then we have to study him. And he's made that way for us in his word. And at the center of the word is the person and work of Christ. So if we want any hope of knowing God, we study it in the Bible. And the Bible is driving us to see how we can best know God through Jesus Christ. That's theology. But that theology isn't just to sit here in our heads or win arguments on pieces of paper or win the chat room discussion. Chat room. Who's in a chat room anymore? It wins a comment section. I just dated myself. Everybody, I just dated myself bad. Stay to your notes, Sean. Stay in your lane. If you want to win those kinds of arguments then you're missing the aim of theology. Theology isn't just to swell the head 
with knowledge. It is to swell the heart with worship. Theology is to lead to doxology. Doxology is the giving to God praise due His name, His worth, His supremeness. It is the praising God. We sang a little bit of the doxology earlier. Doxology is the aim of theology. So how do we get there? Well, three things. Believe rightly. If we want a theology that leads to doxology, we must believe rightly. A passage like this confronts us and says you need to believe rightly about who God is as revealed through Jesus Christ. Now here's something important. It's as overwhelming as it is to understand Jesus as the image of the invisible God. We come to the realization that we may not be able to know Jesus fully. It would have to be, we would have to have the capacity to know something fully. And we don't have the capacity to know Jesus fully. But we can know him truly. We may not be able to know God fully, but what we know of God, we know truly. That's important. We need to know God rightly. We need to believe rightly. That is, we need to have good theology. We don't believe our notions or our imaginations of Jesus. We believe what the Bible reveals about Jesus. So to believe rightly is to believe biblically. And to believe biblically means we got to be in it. We need to read this thing like it's honey and bread and milk and food and air. And as we do, it shapes us and helps us understand the nature and character of God. So, to have a treasuring Christ through worship where we see our theology aiming for doxology, we must believe rightly. We also must believe wholeheartedly. We must believe wholeheartedly. Believing rightly doesn't stay in the realm of an intellectual exercise. Our hearts are to be stirred with affections for Christ. That as we get to, listen to this, as we get to know God, our hearts are being transformed to love God. Because of Jesus. If we were trying to get to know God apart from Christ, He would be the most horrifying being to our souls. And I mean that. Apart from Christ, God would be a terror to us. Something frightening. Something that would lay us wasted, down, crushed, incinerated under His glory and His holiness. But because of Christ... We're not consumed by God's holiness. We're actually welcomed into his living room and called a son and daughter. Into his family. Into the perfect affections of the Trinity. How about that one? Think on that one today. 1 Peter 1.8 I want this kind of heart. 1 Peter 1.8 says this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. 
God wants you most definitely to believe rightly about him. But he wants you also to believe wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. In a loving relationship with the creator of the cosmos. Thirdly, so we want to treasure Christ through worship and we want our theology to lead to doxology. Here's what happens. We believe rightly, we believe wholeheartedly, and we believe worshipfully. Theology that doesn't lead to doxology is dead. Either the theology is dead or the heart is dead. Theology needs to find its fulfillment in doxology. The aim of knowing God through faith in Christ is to worship God. To delight in his worth and declare his worthiness. In the Old Testament, there's this word that is used to kind of capture that. It's a word we don't use very much. Ascribe. When was the last time you ascribed anything? Anybody in here ascribing? <laughs> but it's a cool word. I want us to know the word. It's a word that, that delights in and declares. It's delighting in something and declaring how amazing that something is. It's a great word. And it's always used with songs. Moses wrote a song in response to believing rightly about God. It's found in Deuteronomy 32. And he says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Delight in and declare God's greatness. David wrote a song too. Psalm 29, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord glory to his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The aim of what God has done for us through Jesus is so that we would be people ascribing to him glory to his name, that we would be believing people worshiping him, believing rightly, believing wholeheartedly, believing in worship. Now, here's the warning. You and I, we will worship something. We will worship something. See, we were created for worship. And if we don't worship God, we will find something else to worship. The warning is, if our treasuring Christ through worship is weak or cold, then we either don't have a biblical grasp of Jesus, or we lack a heart that is alive and warmed by gospel affections, or we are trapped in the grip of idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something else as ultimate. Anything we can put in the place of idolatry. Anything. One theologian in the 1500s said the human heart is a factory of idols. That's a good line. It's true. We can churn them out all day long. And that foreman gives no breaks. When we worship something else as supreme or ultimate, we're just setting ourselves up for a crashing discouragement and disappointment. Colossians 1.15, the imaging forth of the invisible God confronts what we worship as supreme. Is it Christ or something else? He is worthy of it. He is worthy of that position. 
Now that worthy then sinks down into an impact on the way that we live. And so that leads us to our second point. If we go about treasuring Christ as supreme, not only are we recognizing his worthiness of that, but then we have to start accounting for the way that we live. And that leads us then to this next confrontation, if you will. And that is we are to obey Jesus. If we want to be serious about treasuring Christ as supreme, then we obey Jesus. And and I actually get that from this next expression, which might be a little confusing at first. The firstborn of all creation, you see there in verse 15. And you might be thinking to yourself, what? What does that mean? The firstborn of all creation? Well, let me first tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus was created. That's what it does not mean. This is very important. You go down a bad pathway, a very, very, very bad pathway, if you believe that Jesus was created by God. No, Jesus is God. We just got that out of the first phrase in verse 15. He is the imaging forth of the invisible God. But we see that throughout the entire passage. You see there in the passage things that only God can be doing and they're being described as belonging to Jesus. So clearly there's something else going on with this whole notion of firstborn of all creation. There's something else happening with this description that maybe our 21st century English ears hear these words and think, oh, is he created? No. Here's what's going on. That expression to be firstborn conveys or shows like the one in the family line who would have the highest authority over the clan or the family. It would be the one who has the highest position of authority. The one which gets it all and is over it all. That's what's being said here. So that what we find is that even later in the Bible, it even emphasizes even more significantly a kingly aspect So that we see that it's signifying an aspect of Jesus that's like a king. He is the king over all things. Psalm 89 uses the firstborn description. Describing the Messiah king. The king that would come to save and rescue God's people. And establish his forever kingdom. Psalm 89 verse 27 says, I will make him the firstborn. The highest of the king's Of the earth. So this expression is conveying to us the highest position of authority over everything. So Jesus is worthy of worship because he is the imaging forth of the invisible God. And relationally to us, he is over us. He is the king over the entire cosmos, over all of creation. And what do kings do? They reign and they rule. And what do kings' subjects do? They follow and they obey. So what does it then look like for us to go about treasuring Christ in obedience? What does it mean for us to go about treasuring Christ in obedience? Well, we become like what we behold. We become like what we behold. Interconnected with what we said about worship. If we really see Jesus as worthy and we see Jesus as king, then our worship will be evident in our manner of living. 
If we want to live for the king, we will live according to the king. If we want to live for Jesus, we will live according to how Jesus would want us to live. Now, you and I, we don't really like that word obey, do we? Because it requires us to submit to a higher authority. Every kid in here just said amen in their heart. They didn't say it out loud because they're probably near their parents. But they, they said preach, preacher, in their heart. We don't like to submit. But when we consider the awesome worthiness of our king, when we consider that he is bringing forth the very nature of God before us in an accessible way through faith, that we can actually know God and not be wiped out by his holiness. What are we talking about? Is submitting really that big of a deal then? When we consider to whom we will live our lives? Rather, the more we behold our king in scripture, the more and more and more we become like him. Here's a very important passage for you. 2 Corinthians 3.18 Here's here's what Paul says. And we all with unveiled face, meaning we could approach God, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. I'm going to say that again. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That means as we behold the glory of the Lord, where can we behold that? In the pages of Scripture, understanding the gospel. As we understand what God has done in human history and accomplished through the person and work of Jesus Christ, when we see Christ imaging forth the character and nature of God, when we realize that God has given us all in His Word, the more we peer into it, the more our lives are being transformed to reflect that which we are beholding. So if we don't go about beholding it, What are we really reflecting? We behold our king in the word. And as we do, we are transformed. And I love how it says, into the same image, we are becoming more and more Christ-like, but one degree of glory to another. Meaning it's incremental. It's a lifelong thing. Sure, there might be seasons in your life where it seems very fresh and near. And maybe you can think back to those moments in your life where you grew a lot in a short amount of time. And then the rest of the time is life, right? It's hard. It's, it's Apollo Abdul song. It's one step forward and two steps back, right? Again, why am I dating myself? <laughs> but take comfort in that. Incrementally, the Lord is at work in you. Behold your king in the pages of scripture. Know him. Trust him. Follow him. So what does it look like to treasure Christ in obedience? Well, we'll get to an incredible passage here um, in Colossians chapter 3. But I want to do a quick flyover to give you a sense of what does it look like to obey him. Well, Colossians 3, verses 5 through 11 says, We put to death or we put off old ways of living. 
old ways of living in which we lived out our lives as if we didn't think Jesus was ultimate. And whatever that might have been for you, maybe it was a chase or pursuit of, of people, of pleasures, of possessions, of power, of comfort, or whatever that might have been. Whatever that old way in which you sought that instead of Jesus, that is to be put off. In fact, other parts of the Bible says you need to put that to death. You need to kill that thing. You need to get to the root of it in your heart and lay the gospel axe to it. Put it to death. It's part of our following the king. Put to death these old ways. And then Colossians 3, 12 through 17 says, you know what? Now you need to put on these new ways. You, you need to put on these new clothes I'm going to give you. You need to be clothed in this way. Your life needs to start pursuing these things. So we stop chasing this and we start clinging to this. We, start, we stop chasing this old way in which we lived as if Jesus wasn't ultimate. And we start living a new way that is in line with what he is as ultimate over us. And that capstone passage in Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4 shows us that Jesus is our means and our aim to do all of it. So we can't do it apart from him. We do it within him because we are united in him through faith. So we put to death old ways and we put on new ones. That's how we go about obeying and following the king. Now warning, a warning for you. If you have a very small Jesus in your theology and in your heart, he requires very little of you. Very little. Be very little transformation in your life, in fact. Very little change at all. If you have a very small Jesus. A small, insignificant Jesus will lead to little transformation in your life. A small Jesus does not inspire change. So the warning is, make sure you have a Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of creation over all of creation kind of Jesus. You need a big treasuring Christ as supreme Jesus, the one who will transform your mind, your heart, and your very lives. And so the question I ask you this morning is, is your Jesus too small? If he is, you have a book in your lap. Take up and read. And as you take up and read, you will be confronted with this in the most glorious and gracious way. He is worthy to be ultimate in your life. And he is worthy to be followed. And he gives you grace to do it. And that leads us to the third point. Trust Jesus. Let's look at the sort of unpacking of his supreme status. So verse 15 tells us that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is bringing the nature of God near and he is helping us understand that he is king over everything. So how does that take shape? Verses 16 and 17. This is a bit of a preposition train of glorious grace. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. By, through, for, 
in. Do you see that there? Underline those. Box them in. Highlight them. Draw arrows to them. Get sticky notes and stickers from your kids. Whatever. Just draw your attention to the fact that that prepositional train says that you can trust Jesus with your life. The prepositional train here says Jesus is worthy of your trust. You can put it all on him. You want to know why? Because all is on him. There isn't anything anywhere that is not being held together by him. Do you, can you trust them? Does he have the ability for you in your mess, in your weariness, your weakness, in your brokenness, in your hurts, in your fears, in your shame, in your regret, in your doubts? Does he have enough for you? Of course he does. Trust him. This train says trust Jesus. By, through, for, in. There isn't a preposition missing of significance. By, all things. Not some things. Not many things. Not most things. All things were created by Jesus. Whoa. Just, just let that sink in for a second. Whoa. That's John 1 right there. All things. Through all things that were created by Jesus find their purpose, their meaning, their place through Jesus. He's, again, over everything. So he's not just making and saying, but he's assigning. He says, this is your purpose. This is your meaning. Because of Jesus, we have purpose and meaning in our creation. Four, the intended end of creation, his glory. We started the service off in Psalm 19. Creation is declaring and speaking forth and singing aloud the glory of God through the work of the Son. In, Jesus is the means by which this all holds together in order. By, through, for, in. We find power, purpose, aim, all of it find their origin in Jesus. Not only is he worthy of worship, he is worthy of our trust. So how do we go about treasuring Christ with trust? Well, let me give you a spoiler alert for those who don't know. Everything in life around you and in your life will ultimately at some point let you down. Spoiler People will let you down. Money will let you down. Possessions will let you down. Positions of power or comfort, they'll let you down. Pleasures will let you down. They will let you down because they can go away. They can diminish. They can be taken. They can fade. And they can betray. When we ask something to give what it can never provide... We burden it with expectations that will cause it and us to buckle into discouragement, disappointment, and despair. When we ask for that relationship to be ultimate to us, we're burdening it with a weight it cannot carry, and that relationship will surely buckle. When we ask comfort to be for us ultimate, and we trust that it will, and we want it to, and then when health comes along, or when some sort of brokenness comes along, that this 
disrupts that comfort. It buckles under the burden. When we ask pleasures to be for us something ultimate, no matter what those pleasures might be, when we chase them, we find that they fade away from the glory we first tasted. They just diminish. They're not as pleasurable. So sometimes we have to ratchet up the pursuit in order to get that feel and that pleasure again. And they will always buckle under the weight of ultimacy because nothing in this life can carry that weight. Nothing in this life is worth trusting to carry that weight except one. And that's Jesus. The image of the invisible God, the King of the cosmos, the by through, for, in, Jesus. Put your trust in the only one who is trustworthy. His resume speaks for itself. I want to close with this. Life on this side of glory is like a constant rehearsal. It's like a constant rehearsal. I want you to fix in your mind right now the image of a symphony or an orchestra. A symphony rehearses the intricacies and beauty of a music piece. They go over it for months before they perform. Months. Weekend. Week out, day in, day out, hour by hour even. They go over it again and again and again and again. And if they have a really great piece of music that they're working on, you ask them about that. You ask someone who's ever been a part of an orchestra or or symphony and they've had this incredible piece of music and they will tell you that even as they gain greater familiarity and comfortability with the music, it still wowed them. They They still saw new things. They still felt overwhelmed by the sheer brilliance of the piece. And so they played it again and again and again, getting ready for that performance. Our lives, this side of glory, are rehearsals going over again and again and again the intricacies and the beauty of God by means of treasuring Christ in worship, obedience, and trust. And guess what? The other side, the flip side of glory, the performance will be held and it will be perfect and it will be glorious and there will be no missed note, no missed measure, no missed beat. It will be perfect orchestra and symphony of praise and glory to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You have the music in front of you. You have it here. Let us rehearse it again and again and again. God, we pray that you would do that in our hearts. That you would help us to see the supreme worthiness of Jesus.
that we would long to behold him in the pages of scripture and that our hearts and minds and our lives would be transformed. That we would want to live after him as our king for his glory. And that we would find in him one trustworthy and true and worth it all. Would you do this profound work in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Somehow I don't think the hallelujah chorus at this moment would be sufficient. But we will make do <laughs> with an old, simple song, Lord, reign in me. Would you stand, please?